0: Hello and welcome to Coco Pods podcast. My name is Dr. Bola Sagade. This podcast is a feature of the Birth Center for Natural Deliveries Foundation. And we are fortunate to have with us today Dr. Cynthia Korn, a clinical psychologist in San Francisco. So, hello and welcome, Cynthia, to Coco Pods podcast. So, you talked about domestic and emotional labor division. Mm -hmm. Do you want to elaborate on that?
1: Well, people have probably heard about emotional labor lately, in quotes. It's been in the popular culture for a while, and it was actually coined years ago. There's some books about sociology that show the way that our culture, the American culture, has been for many generations has created a situation where women are socialized to do most of the domestic, not just the labor, but also to carry all of the emotional burden of managing the household, managing people's needs and wants, whether it's the husband, if this is a heterosexual couple, or the po- other partner, you know, if it's not, if the that person is the main caregiver. So it's usually the caregiver who's the the central one taking care of the kids that does more of this, right? And feels beleaguered by it because it's a heavy burden to be the one that carries all of that management. And it often fell to the woman who was taking care of the children in traditional terms in the heterosexual marriage. Now, things have shifted because we have a much more open family structure. We have LGBTQI couples of all kinds creating change in the way these things are done. But apparently, statistically, and I know some of this, even though I'm not an authority, it hasn't completely changed the person that decides to be at home with the kids or who does more of that ends up doing more of this work, whether they're in a relationship with a partner who works outside the home or works at home. So it can be difficult
0: for that person. And then we also talked about intimacy, sex, and, uh, this appears to probably be also can be a frequent source of conflict between couples. And I wonder if the disagreements are about the frequency of, of uh, intimacy with one person feeling their needs and not being met, and the other person feeling harassed or injured. How? what are the ways in which intimacy, could cause conflict amongst couples. You're talking about when it doesn't feel balanced,
1: when the one person wants more intimacy and the other seems to either be avoiding it or withdraw from it, or alternatively maybe just not want or need as much connection because that can happen. There, there are differences. So I think the most important thing is to first explore and understand that there are differences, as well as at the same time, try to understand what really is going on in terms of this particular coupling. Um, And often there are other underlying dynamics that are causing estrangement or a problem in their connection. There can also be actual sexual difficulties. And in that case, there may need to be medical intervention or there can be just some kind of difference in desire that needs to be understood. The idea would be to make intimacy come back to life between these two people and figure out how to have a compromise where they can have enough of it. And one the one partner who is in some way avoidant or threatened or not as needy of it is able to still feel accepted by the other. And the one who needs more is able to feel fulfilled to some degree, at least. And this is something that it takes a long time sometimes, but therapy is very useful in
0: this regard. So now if one couple cannot resolve this, Mm -hmm. uh, like the partner that wanted more, couldn't get more, I mean, and this led to infidelity. I mean, how have you, have you seen cases like this in your in your work and how have you helped?
1: Yes, if infidelity has, you know, it often causes people to come to therapy. It's often the impetus for therapy, either because it's discovered and it's been hidden by the one partner or it's a longstanding issue or it's a one-time thing. I mean, it can be any number of things. I believe that it doesn't mean that people need to break up and that there is a way to heal if they want to stay together. And I think the hardest part is that, is healing from the breakdown that it can cause in a couple relationship because the trust is often broken and that has to be rebuilt. And agreements have to be made to make things feel more safe. It doesn't mean that there will be a good foundation for shared intimacy necessarily, though. So that also has to be an ongoing stream of the therapy along the way. Can it be rebuilt? Is it going to work? And I think that that's one of the ongoing questions in therapy with couples who, where there has been something like this. There has to be a choice point about whether to be together and keep trying to make it better or to break up. And it depends. I mean, there are times when I've helped people break up and there are other times when it's felt like people really want to make it work. And they have to make some concessions to the reality of their difference along the way. That is very important. That is the
0: key in a way. Well, thank you so much for that. And, you know, so there are arguments that new couples have and those that couples that have been together longer have. What are the common arguments that older, and when I mean older, I mean, they've been in the relationship longer. What are the more common arguments these kinds of couples have? Well, I think these are about the things
1: I was talking about that people bring in. The, I don't think that there's any difference in terms of age about the kinds of things that people argue about in general. I do think that they're often about difference, as I was saying communication problems, how much time they spend together. That's a big argument. Money, sex, or intimacy, as we were just talking about. And also this idea that I brought up about the division of labor, emotional labor, domestic chores, et cetera. And then health concerns. That's a big one. With aging, I do think that worries about health the feeling of having missed opportunities in life, loneliness, maybe of a, one of the partners or the other, and loss of independence can take more precedence and lead to conflict. But I generally think a lot of the same things that I'm mentioning come up over and over.
0: As we know, as we have established, every relationship has conflict. And learning how to handle conflicts cannot only catch-up issues, but it can also make relationships stronger and lead to lasting change. When you do therapy with couples, I mean, how effective has some of your therapy been? Actually, it can really help
1: people to work over time, week by week, because this is the process of therapy. It takes time, but it does really help them to practice learning better conflict resolution, both in the room with me or on Zoom, if they're on Zoom, and together when they're not with me. And a lot of it has to do with learning to open up your mind to the other person's perspective and really attune to what the other person might be thinking in the moment when you have a very different approach often. So that's part of it. It's like opening up the perspective, reminding yourself that there's another mind there who thinks differently. And then also learning to calm yourself, to not to react to the other person, rather to be reflective, to understand that the point is to connect and reach the other person and share your perspective and be curious about their mind. I think those things are concepts that people start to get better at incorporating. And then instead of fighting, they learn how to talk and they talk more fruitfully over time because of it. It doesn't always work, but it often does work quite well. And it's a combination in the room of working with each person individually and with them as a couple. And you're kind of tacking
0: back and forth doing this kind of work. So you did mention that you help couples break up. So how is couple therapy used by divorcing couples? You know, how often do divorcing couples actually try this sort of help? And at what stage of the relationship or the breakdown of the relationship Do couples seek, you know, like maybe a couple, they see that they are destined for divorce, but it's just like, let's try one last thing. So at what stage of that declining relationship, do they reach out to a counselor like you? Well, that's a good question. I think
1: that's the operative question. (laughs) It's like, why don't people start Therapy earlier. I think behind your question, that is implicit. People, I would suggest to people that they come to therapy even just to improve their relationship when it's not going badly yet, (laughs) but they can sense they have some difficulties. So I think that those are the most healthy marriages or partnerships. When someone decides and tells their partner, hey, maybe we need some help with this. Should we see somebody a little bit to to learn some better ways of relating together so that we don't get into these difficult situations where we have a stalemate or an argument that rises to a place where it's out of control or where it's destructive because that's when it gets dangerous to the relationship. When people are mean to each other or they can't calm down and they say things they don't mean. These are all very, that's a sign that you're already at a place where it's not good and you need to get help. So I think helping people break up only happens when we decide together in, the, in terms of the process of therapy that that's what the partners want and that it feels like it's the right
0: thing. Thank you. So a licensed counselor like yourself, you know, you work with people to help improve their relationship. And I do have medical students and residents and other students listening on what does the schooling or training involve to become a licensed counselor? And what types of counselors are specifically trained to work with different kinds of people? So if I have a high school student that says, I want to be like Dr. Cynthia Cohn, what <laughs> career path? Should they anticipate?
1: There are various paths to becoming a psychotherapist. There are licensed clinical psychologists, masters of family therapy, social workers, and even some psychiatrists who may work primarily as psychotherapists. And there are a number of theoretical orientations and approaches to therapy, whether with individuals or couples. My training is primarily psychoanalytic or what people call psychodynamic in common parlance. And these forms of therapy all require years of training and you either have to get a master's or a doctorate or a a clinical social work degree and then go on to do training under practitioners who are senior to you often for a few years, to get the hours required to become licensed. So in every state, there's a board for each of these fields that I mentioned, and people can read about what the requirements are, and they can learn about which schools might offer the training they're interested in. But I do suggest that if you're in high school, or in college, and you're thinking about this, that you do some research on your own to figure out what appeals to you and look into even the curriculum at these different places, what kinds of um, training is offered, where you might work, and think about what your goal is long-term. What kind of work do you want to do? I mean, you can follow a research path as well, rather than a path to becoming a therapist, if that feels better to you, that's also very interesting. People do all kinds of psychology research at universities and in other places. It's a big field. There's also organizational psychology, and there are all kinds of jobs working with different populations and groups of people at clinics, even in the corporate world. I think there are many, many opportunities. It's a wonderful field. It's hard work to become licensed. (laughs) It requires years and it's often fairly costly for people, but it is totally, I would suggest it as a great profession.
0: Thank you so much. So when we go back to couples, we've been talking about couples, like any form of therapy, couples counseling requires a commitment and a willingness to open up from both sides, from both involved parties. How easy is it as a counselor to achieve this, to have your couples not hold back and just let you know what is truly going on so that you can properly help them? This is not easy to achieve.
1: In fact, one of the challenges of being a couple therapist is in the early sessions, helping either one or both partners feel safe and secure, even in the relationship with the therapist first, and also in their relationship, depending on where they are in terms of conflict, etc., cetera, to open up in the room. Often there's one partner who's unwilling to open up and the other comes in with a lot to say, or, you know, it can be a different dynamic. But sometimes I've had couples where both are are resistant to being vulnerable or to opening up to each other. And then that takes time to work through. And often the trust develops slowly with me in the room. And when it does, there's a sense that by then we have developed a kind of structure for our work together and a rhythm and a feeling that people can bring their thoughts and feelings freely a little bit more than they could at the beginning, and that it will be safe to talk about things to their partner that might be delicate or difficult. And then the work can become a little deeper. And this is something that has to go on for quite some time often before we get to the point where we're working on the underlying dynamics or patterns of relating. Along the way, what I'm doing also is learning relationship history, exploring some of their history as individuals before their relationship began, especially early family history and history of previous romantic relationships. And this is all information that informs my hypotheses and also helps me talk to the couple individually and together about what may be holding them back from being more open.
0: So the the history of the family of origin Mm -hmm. and previous relationships, these are very important factors that could impact the current relationship, whether the couple is conscious of it or not, right? Correct. And also those
1: bits of history and information let me know about the dynamics in other relationships that may be being repeated in this relationship. And often those things can, we can make links, including if there was trauma, for example, we can make a link from the traumatic relationship from, you know, or something that happened in childhood, even to something that might be going on now. And that can open and unlock something in the person. You know, I'm saying this could be a revelation. I mean, it may or may not be so revelatory for some, but for others, it can be. It can be a, a moment where there's a catharsis even. I now see that the way I react when my partner does this is the way I reacted at the time long ago when something happened to me with my mother or my father. You know, I'm making it simplified here, but that can actually happen. And those things are very powerful. And then they have an influence on the bond with the couple.
0: Thank you. You know, according to the American Association for Marriage and Family Therapy, more than 98% of its clients surveyed reported marriage and family therapy services as good or excellent. So are there happy endings? Have you actually helped couples stay together that things were really bad and you know they came back to thank you? Can you tell us about some happy endings here?
1: Yes, I do have couples who have stayed together and have come back. You know, sometimes people come back just briefly. They want to revisit what they learned. I have that with individuals and with couples. They sometimes come back years later. Many people graduate, in quotes, from therapy because they're ready to go out on their own and practice what they learned. And they feel more stable and they feel better together. So yes, there are all kinds of good outcomes. That's actually a common theme is that people get a lot from therapy, and then they go off on their own. Sometimes I do not hear about what happens with them. I mean, that's the norm. But the sense I have at the end is they've had enough therapy for now, and that now they see the benefits of it. And that's one of the goals is people come for a couple of years even. And they I know that might sound like a long time to your listeners, but it's actually a very good amount to start therapy and learn something and then take it on the road with you. <laughs> and then later, because you had a good experience, you might decide, well, now we're having a different part of life come in and affect us in a way that we didn't expect. There's a transition or something. Maybe we go back to therapy.
0: For our listeners out there, we're fortunate to be talking to Dr. Cynthia Cohn from the Bay Area. He's a counselor, a licensed clinical psychologist, MFA Psych-D. So we're very fortunate to be talking to Dr. Cynthia Cohn today.